0: Um, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to kick off our Advent series this year, Good News for All People, and what we want to do is actually just kind of follow a storyline. So as we begin Advent, um, the the purpose of Advent was always to look forward to the coming of the Messiah, to look forward to the promised Messiah. He was greatly longed for and, and he was much anticipated, but the question is, is why? Why was he so longed for? Why was he so anticipated? The reason is, is because of the hope of redemption after the fall, right? So after sin came into the world, God made a promise. So for the next four weeks, that's exactly what we're going to do, is we're going to look at this good news for all people, and we're going to get a glimpse into the storyline of good news, this, this storyline of redemption um, from God to his people. And the the thing is, is that, The good news can only happen because bad news came. And so today, we're actually going to look at the need for good news in Genesis 3. And the main idea is this, that the need for good news arose when sin entered the world, so God promised hope of redemption. I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we're going to work through this together this morning. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. And this season where we get somewhat caught up in the spirit, our worldly spirit of Christmas, I guess, where we get so caught up in just the things that we sometimes forget the beauty of the season. That you came to your people. Despite us, as Romans tells us, that you have demonstrated your own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For Christ to die, He had to first come. So God comes to us, and God, we should give thanks for that. And now this morning, as we begin to look at the storyline, or glimpses of the storyline of good news throughout Scripture, we praise you for the work that you have done. You could have easily, and you had the right to just leave us lost in our sin, hopeless, But you didn't. You gave your son to be the ransom for many. So this morning, God, as we look at your word, we pray that you will speak to us. You know every one of us here. You know the condition of our hearts. You know what's going on in our lives. And so we come trusting that your word will root deeply within us. And we ask that for those who have never trusted in Jesus as Savior God, that this morning you will speak pointedly to their hearts that they might confess Jesus is the Christ. And for some of us who just struggle during the holiday season, we pray for comfort and peace as we remember that our God is greater than anyone or anything. So we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and that you bless our time together. In Christ's glorious name we pray, amen. So right off the bat, in Genesis 3, in verse 1, we begin to see deception and rebellion. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden'?" So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So following creation, everything was perfect. All that God had made was good, very good. The creation of land, the creation of sea, the creation of animals, even the creation of man and woman was complete. (coughs) Excuse me. That is until Satan, the father of lies, embodied the serpent and brought deception into the garden. See, what he actually did was he caused God's creation to question God. Did God actually say? And they began to question well, what did God actually say? See, the desire for them to be as God overcame their humanity and they gave way to temptation. They were created perfect, but there was this temptation to be something greater. And isn't that exactly what Satan does still? See, the truth is is that Satan uses stuff in our lives to make us question truth. And if we're not grounded in the word, we will quickly fall as well. It's so easy to look at Adam and Eve and want to say, how in the world could you do such a thing when God had given all of this? There's James, I don't know what it is, but something's ringing can you just like mute everything for me? Sorry, sorry guys. My ADD will be here in that ringing the whole time and I'll miss everything. So appreciate that. But God had given everything. He had given them the beauty of Eden, perfect creation, a beautiful union, but they wanted more. And if we're not rooted deeply in the word of God, that's exact, exactly what happens to us. We begin to question everything. Did God actually call me to this? Is God actually allowing this to happen in my life? Does God want me to do this? Or can I just simply do this and be satisfied? And so the serpent began to make Eve and Adam question what God actually said. Did God truly say you should not eat of any of the tree? And he began to twist God's words. He began to twist God's ways. He began to twist God's thoughts. See, the deception of Satan in this moment was simply fueled by the delightful fruit that they were forbidden from eating. See, it's not only that they were forbidden to eat of that tree, but the tree, it says, was in the midst of the garden and apparently had this very beautiful fruit. And instead of being thankful for all that they had, they were Less thankful and they were more so drawn to what they didn't have. Instead of acknowledging all the good things that God had given, they wanted the one thing that he said not to take. And so Satan began to use that. See, it was a beautiful fruit and it apparently fit their heart's desire because innately their heart at this point was beginning to drift from God. I and mean, it's easy to look to the bite of fruit, and that's the moment of sin, but they had already begun to question who God was. They'd already begun to question God's commands, God's ways. And as soon as they gave in to that temptation, they ate of the fruit, and then reality actually began to set in. Their eyes were opened, and they realized that everything was different. Previously, they had not realized that they were naked they were not a un, they were unashamed that they were who God had created them to be and they loved the people that God had created them to be and they loved the place that God had created them to be in he had given them dominion over the garden he had given them rules and tasks to simply be his people and he would be their god it's really a picture of what we see at the new heavens and the new earth when we hear that He will be with us as our God and we will be with Him as His people. Not distant, but in the midst, in their presence. But the rebellion in their lives built a wall between man and God. Deception had overtaken them. And they gave in to the lies and the deception of Satan. He simply twisted what God had said. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. So they gave into that temptation. They wanted to be God. And again, it's easy for us to look at them and say, how could you do such a thing? But we do that every day. We look at the good things that God has given and we want more. We neglect The good gifts of God for the things that aren't necessarily so good. Our heart goes after the shiny things instead of the good things. And all of those are simply tools of Satan. He dangles in front of us the shiny thing and that's what we go for. It's like a carrot in front of a horse in a race. They put the blinders on and all they know is I'm going after that thing, right? Or a dog at a dog track where they have the little fake rabbits and they just go after those things. Our heart's desire is to be greater than who we are. We don't want to be submissive to anyone or anything. We want to lord over all things, which is why we rebel against God every moment of every day. And that's where the need for good news arises. Sin had entered into the world. So soon after God had created beauty and perfection. And so we move to verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Satan had promised them knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, for them to be as God, that they would know both. And that's exactly what they got. They got exactly what they were asking for, just not quite the exact way they were anticipating. They wanted to know good and evil, and that's exactly what they learned to know. But they wanted to be as God, lording over And just having the knowledge. But the knowledge they got was that they were no longer good. Their rebellion against God had opened the door for sin. And from that moment, sin was a problem and it still is. For humanity and creation. During the break, um, James came to me. A friend of his in Tifton who was a pilot, was watching a pilot radar and said that they were having... Um, tornado issues over there. Tornadoes that will likely cause destruction. Why does that happen? It's an effect of sin. Why do bad things happen? Effect of sin. From the moment that they gave into temptation and, and listened to the deception of Satan, sin had marred all of God's creation. And the effect of that sin is problems. Shame. It says that immediately they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. They had come to realize who they were in light of who God was. So this knowledge of good and evil that they longed for was twisted by Satan. And now they realized who they were in light of the holiness of God. They were no longer this perfect creation, but things had changed. And they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed and they began to try to hide this. But notice what we see in verses 12 and following. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, one of the effects of sin in our lives is shame. They hid themselves. The next thing we see here is not just shame, but it actually goes to them beginning to push blame. right? Adam blames it on Eve, Eve blames it on the serpent. The point is, is they all failed. Both of them fell into temptation, Adam was created to be the ruler of the garden, to have dominion over all the animals. Eve was created to be his helpmate. It was his responsibility, and he sat oddly by and allowed her to fall. But then he tried to push blame onto her. And then she tried to naturally push blame onto Satan. Satan is the father of lies, there's no doubt of that. Satan brings deception every moment of every day. Which is why it's so important for us to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. To hold tight to the truth that we know. To not allow shame to enter in. To not allow this neglect of our own faults to enter in. That's part of what repentance is about, to acknowledge our sin against God. You know, so often we say that we're repentant of our sin and we're sorry for our sin, but we're only sorry because of the effects. We're not sorry because of what it actually does, right? Our sin is not grotesque because it harms those around us. Our sin is grotesque because it breaks the heart of God. It goes against the holiness of God. Is it horrible that it affects others as well? Yes, it is, but that's not the point. The point is that it destroys the heart of God. It was the union with God that was broken. And as we continue to sin, all we are doing is simply living into our human nature. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. And that's the next effect of sin is death. So for us, we must never forget the enormity and the seriousness of our sin. Because as we forget those things, then we forget how good the salvation of God truly is. I've heard a lot of people say we need to forget our past. I, I disagree with that. I think we need to hear those things and we need to know those things because it helps us see how good God had been to save me. You want to know what makes John Newton's amazing grace so wonderful? That he acknowledged who he was and he rejoiced in the salvation that that came from God. He remembered his role as a captain of a slave ship. He remembered the horrible things that he had done. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And also, it was why at the end of his life, he he could say as his sight was going, he said, and as my sight is fading, as my memory is fading, I remember two things quite well, that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. We need to know. How else can we glory in the work of God and salvation if we think that we're in no need of it? We need to acknowledge the seriousness and the enormity of our sin." We need to know the horrible nature of what it is that we have done against God. And after we see the sin and the shame of sin, we begin to go into another section where it begins to talk about curse and hope. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and to the dust you shall eat, and all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This section of verses between verses 14 and 24, the end of the text, what we see is this um, progression of curses against the serpent, the woman, and the man. And he starts with a curse for the serpent. Right, that Satan had used the serpent to be his way of deceiving. And so he says that there's going to be this negative reaction between you and mankind for the rest of your days. How many of you get completely wigged out when you see a snake? A couple honest people, a couple honest people. And it might be an answer of what kind, but when I first see it, I'm not saying, well, what kind is that? I'm I'm going to freak out, and then I'm going to say, okay, well, what kind is it, right? I don't like reptiles, period, none of them, regardless of how harmful or harmless they are. But the point is, is that God begins to curse the serpent because of his part in deceiving man. And then he goes into verse 16, he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The curse of the woman was that she would bear pain in childbirth. Which is extremely hard considering what he then says in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of, the mother of all living because she was the mother of all living, the pain of childbirth was elevated in this curse. But also, in the midst of this curse, what we see is that God's complementary design for man and woman had been greatly harmed. And because of sin, there would then be a lasting battle for power, that there would be this ongoing rebellion against God's plan. And then he goes to the curse of man, verse 17. for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then down in verse 22, the curse continues. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and it The east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The curse of man is that Adam was made from dust and he was given abundance of the Garden of Eden. And he he is removed from that. He has promised that death will come, that from the dust he was made into dust he will return. Sin brought death. But not only did it bring death, but he also lost the beauty of the Garden of Eden. He was removed from the Garden of Eden. And the interesting thing is, is the curse actually wasn't that he would work, but that he would work with pain. He was created to work. He was created to man the garden, to to oversee God's creation. And he failed. And so the effect then is that he would work in pain and thorns and thistles. That it would be angst for him to work all the days of his life, not knowing if the weather would cooperate to grope whatever he needed to eat, not knowing if the ground would be too hard, not knowing if animals would overtake his work, that there would be this constant angst for the rest of his life. But it's not all bad news. There is good news. Go back to verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What we see here is the first promise of the Messiah. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium. The first pronouncing of the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. And here in Genesis 3. So when people try to say the Old Testament doesn't matter. When people try to say that the Old Testament isn't about Jesus. To be frank, they're wrong. You see the gospel right here. That God had promised. Yes, Satan, you used the serpent. And you brought deception. And sin entered this world. In other words, you bruise the heel, but the heel you bruised will crush your head. And we see that in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ that Satan was ultimately destroyed. Is he still working and doing everything within his power to destroy the plans and people of God? He is, but you know what? He's losing and he will continue to lose. It is a losing battle, which is part of why resting in the work of Christ is simply an act of grace. We're not working our way to receive salvation. We're not working our way to receive the merit of God. He has already done that in Christ for us. Satan has been defeated. Darkness will not overcome. So in the midst of the darkness, God promises light and his name is Jesus. The first pronouncing of the gospel that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The head of the serpent will be crushed. See, Jesus was God's plan of redemption from the very beginning. All of Scripture is telling the story of God's redeeming work for his people. You know this. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible, and the line in there that every story whispers his name speaks true to the Word of God. It all is about God's redeeming love for his people. So, why is Romans 5 8 so important? For God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died. It's the gospel. The gospel is that God could have and had every right to leave us dead in our sin. But because of his great love for us, gave us good news. That sin would be eradicated forever. And that God would reign in righteousness. We also see good news in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So in verse 15, we see the first pronouncing of the gospel. In verse 21, we see the first sacrifice. The beauty of the gospel is that God willingly lays down the life of his son for the good of us all. That he would become the propitiation, the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That our only hope of redemption is in the blood of another. You know my... Love for C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. And it's an example that I've used over and over again, and I probably will until either I lose my mind or I die. But in the line The Witch in the Wardrobe, when Edmund turns against his own family and turns against Aslan, I guess I should do this. Is anybody not familiar with Chronicles of Narnia? Everybody is? We're good to go then. This will make sense. When I get to talk about talking animals and stuff, don't think I actually have lost my mind. But Edmund turns against his family, and he gives in to the White Witch, the temptations of the White Witch. And there comes this point where the only hope for him is that Aslan strikes a deal with the White Witch. Strikes a deal. That Edmund would be set free if Aslan would give himself up. And Aslan, being a representation of Christ, willingly lays himself down to save his beloved son. And so the white witch gathers all of her grotesque beings and around the stone tablet, the stone table... They make a mockery of Aslan, they pluck his beard, and she sacrifices Aslan on the stone table. And Edmund is set free. He gave his life for the despicable traitor of Edmund. But just like the rest of Scripture, bad news is always followed with good news, As Lucy and Susan mourn the death of seeing Aslan, the ground begins to shake. And suddenly Aslan is gone and they hear the rustling and they see Aslan is not dead, but he's very much alive. And he says something to the effect of, she might have known the black magic, but there's a greater magic still. The sinless... Son of God gave Himself to redeem the traitor in all of us. And God glorified Him by raising Him from death to life. And in the very much the same way here, to cover their sin of shame, God sacrifices some form of animal And he forms garments of the skins and he clothes them. Again, to say that the gospel is not in this is to apparently just not read this. This is pointing to the truth that God greatly loves his people. And that God would go to great lengths to redeem his people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son... That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, in his craftiness, Satan thought that he had thwarted God's plans. But the reality is, is that God's plans cannot be thwarted. But isn't it interesting that all along here and then even later, as Satan tempts Judas to have... Christ murdered that he's thinking he's winning. But all he's actually doing is he's playing into the glorious story of God's redeeming work for his people. See, it's God who is all-knowing. It's God who is all-wise. It's God who is all-sovereign. So we can rest completely in the plans, and the greatness, and the grace of Almighty God. And so for us, as we go through Advent, but not even just Advent, but through all of life, we need to understand that as the people of God, that there will be dark moments. But in the midst of those dark moments, in those dark seasons of life, there's always hope in Jesus. He is the light of the world. And he shines in the darkest of nights. See, there was a need for good news. And as we will see over the next three weeks, God gloriously delivers that good news. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to your love for us in Christ. that even in the midst of our sin and our shame and our rebellion against you, you provide a way for us to be reunited, to trust in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, your Son, as He has paid the penalty for our sin debt and giving His own life. So may we trust in Christ this morning and may we long during the season of Advent for the day that he returns. So as your people, we are reunited with our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's in that most glorious name that we pray.